Good evening. I hope you've had a great day today. Welcome to BBJ's Bedtime Stories. I'm Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a good night's sleep with public domain short stories just for you. Links to all the stories can be found at the show notes at bedtimewithbbj.com. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a Buy Me A Coffee link on every page and post. Tonight we continue our story, The Valley of Fear, by Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter 2, The Body Master. McMurdo was a man who made his mark quickly. Wherever he was, the folk around soon knew it. Within a week, he'd become infinitely the most important person at Chafters. There were ten or a dozen boarders there, but they were honest foremen or commonplace clerks from the stores of a very different caliber from the young Irishman. Of an evening when they gathered together, his joke was always the readiest, his conversation the brightest, and his song the best. He was a born boon companion with a magnetism which drew good humor from all around him. And yet he showed again and again, as he had shown in the railway carriage, a capacity for sudden, fierce anger, which compelled the respect and even the fear of those who met him. For the law, too, and all who were connected with it, he exhibited a bitter contempt which delighted some and alarmed others of his fellow boarders. From the first, he made it evident by his open admiration that the daughter of the house had won his heart from the instant that he had set eyes upon her beauty and her grace. He was no backward suitor. On the second day, he told her that he loved her. And from then onward, he repeated the same story with an absolute disregard of what she might say to discourage him. Someone else, he would cry. Well, the worst luck for someone else. Let him look out for himself. Am I to lose my life's chance with all my heart's desire for someone else? You can keep on saying no, Eddie. The day will come when you will say yes. And I'm young enough to wait. He was a dangerous suitor, with his glib Irish tongue and his pretty coaxing ways. There was about him that glamour of experience and of mystery which attracts woman's interest, and finally, her love. He could talk of the sweet valleys of County Monaghan from which he came, of the lovely distant island, the low hills and green meadows of which seemed the more beautiful when imagination viewed them from this place of grime and snow. Then he was versed in the life of the cities of the north, of Detroit, and the lumber camps of Michigan, and finally of Chicago, where he had worked in a planing mill. And afterwards came the hint of romance, the feeling that strange things had happened to him in that great city. So strange and so intimate that they might not be spoken of. He spoke wistfully of a sudden leaving, a breaking of old ties, a flight into a strange world, ending in this dreary valley. And Eddie listened, her dark eyes gleaming with pity and with sympathy. Those two qualities which made turn so rapidly and so naturally to love. McMurdo had obtained a temporary job as bookkeeper, for he was a well-educated man. This kept him out most of the day, and he had not found occasion yet to report himself to the head of the lodge of the eminent order of Freeman. He was reminded of his mission, however, by a visit one evening from Mike Scanlon, the fellow member whom he had met in the train. Scanlon, the small, sharp-faced, nervous, black-eyed man, seemed glad to see him once more. After a glass or two of whiskey, he broached the object of his visit. Say, McMurdo, said he, I remembered your address, so I made bold to call. I'm surprised that you've not reported to the bodymaster. Why haven't you seen Boss McGinty yet? Well, I had to find a job. I've been busy. You must find time for him if you have none for anything else. Good Lord, man, you're a fool not to have been down to the union house and registered your name the first morning after you came here. If you run against him, well, you must have all. McMurdo showed mild surprise. I've been a member of the lodge now for over two years, Scanlon. But I never heard that duties were so pressing as all that. Maybe not in Chicago. Well, it's the same society here. Is it? Scanlon looked at him long and fixedly. There was something sinister in his eyes. Isn't it? You'll tell me that in a month's time. I hear you had a talk with the patrolman after I left the train. How did you know that? Oh, it got about. Things do get about for good and for bad in this district. Well, yes, I told the hounds what I thought of them. By the Lord, you'll be a man after McGinty's heart. What, does he hate the police too? Scanlon burst out laughing. You go and see him, my lad, said he as he took his leave. It's not the police, but you that you'll hate if you don't. Now take your friend's advice and go at once. It chanced that on the same evening McMurdo had another more pressing interview, which urged him in the same direction. It may have been that his attentions to Eddie had been more evident than before, or that they had gradually obtruded themselves into the slow mind of the good German host. But whatever the cause, the boarding house keeper beckoned the young man into his private room and started on the subject without any circumlocution. It seems to me, mister, said he, that you are getting set on my Eddie. Ain't that so, or am I wrong? Yes, that is so, the young man answered. Well, I want to tell you right now that it ain't no manner of use. There's someone slipped in for you, she told me so. Well, you can lay that she told you the truth. But did she tell you who it was? No, I asked her, but she wouldn't tell. I dare say not, the little baggage. Perhaps she did not wish to frighten you of any. Frighten? McMurdo was on fire in a moment. Ah, yes, my friend. You need not be ashamed to be frightened of him. It is Teddy Baldwin. And who the devil is he? He is a boss of Scourers. Scourers? I've heard of him before. It's Scourers here and Scourers there and always in a whisper. What are you all afraid of? Who are the Scourers? The boarding housekeeper instinctively sank his voices. Everyone did who talked about that terrible society. The Scourers, said he, are the eminent order of Freeman. The young man said, Why, I am a member of that order myself. You! 
I would never have had you in my house if I'd known it. Not if you were to pay me $100 a week. What's wrong with the order? It's for charity and good fellowship. The rules say so. Maybe in some places. Not here. What is it here? It's a murder society. That's what it is. McMurdo laughed incredulously. How can you prove that? He asked. Prove it? Are there not 50 murders to prove it? What about Millman and Vershorst and the Nicholson family and old Mr. Hyam and little Billy James and the others? Prove it? Is there a man or a woman in this valley that does not know it? See here, said McMurdo earnestly. I want you to take back what you said or else make it good. One or the other you must do before I quit this room. Put yourself in my place. You're my stranger in this town. I belong to a society that I know only as an innocent one. You'll find it through the length and breadth of the states, but always as an innocent one. Now when I'm counting upon joining it here, you tell me that it is the same as a murder society called the Scourers. I guess you owe me either an apology or else an explanation, Mr. Shafter. I can but tell you what the other world knows, mister. The bosses of this one are the bosses of the other. If you offend the one, it is the other what will strike you. We have proved it too often. Let's just go up. I want proof, said McMurdo. If you live here long, you'll get your proof. But I forget that you are yourself one of them. You will soon be as bad as the rest. But you will find other lodgings, mister. I cannot have you here. Is it not bad enough that one of these people came courting my Eddie? And that I dare not turn him down? But that I shall have another for my border? Yes, indeed. You shall not sleep here after tonight. McMurdo found himself under sentence of banishment, both from his comfortable quarters and from the girl whom he loved. He found her alone in the sitting room that same evening, and he poured his troubles into her ear. Sure, your father's after giving me notice, he said. It's little I would care if it was just my room, but indeed, Eddie, though it's only a week that I've known you, you are the very breath of life to me, and I can't live without you. Oh, hush, Mr. McMurdo, don't speak so, said the girl. I've told you, have I not, that you are too late. There is another, and if I have not promised to marry him at once, at least I can promise no one else. Suppose I've been first, Eddie. Would I have had a chance? The girl sank her face into her hands. I wish to heaven that you had been first, she sobbed. McMurdo was down on his knees before her in an instant. For God's sake, Eddie, let it stand to death, he cried. Will you ruin your life and my own for the sake of this promise? Follow your heart, Akushla. Tis a safer guide than any promise before you knew what it was that you were saying. He had seized Eddie's white hand between his own strong brown ones. Say that you will be mine, and we will face it out together. Not here. Yes, here. No, no. Jack, his arms were around her now. It could not be here. Could you take me away? A struggle passed for a moment over McMurdo's face, but it ended by setting like granite. No. Here, he said. I'll hold you against the world, Eddie, right here where we are. Why should we not leave together? No, Eddie, I can't leave here. But why? I'll never hold my head up again if I felt that I had been driven out. Besides, what is there to be afraid of? Are we not free folks in a free country? If you love me and I you, who will dare to come between? You don't know, Jack. You've been here too short a time. You don't know this Baldwin. You don't know McGinty and his towers. No, I don't know them, and I don't fear them, and I don't believe in them, said McMurdo. I've lived among rough men, my darling, and instead of fearing them, it has always ended that they have feared me. Always, Eddie. It's mad on the face of it. If these men, as your father says, have done crime after crime in the valley, and if everyone knows them by name, how comes it that none are brought to justice? You answer me that, Eddie. Because no witness dares to appear against them. He would not live a month if he did. Also because they always have their own men to swear that the accused one was far from the scene of the crime. But surely, Jack, you must have read all this. I had understood that every paper in the United States was writing about it. Well, I've read something, it is true, but I thought it was a story. Maybe these men had some reason in what they do. Maybe they are wronged and have no other way to help themselves. Oh, Jack, don't let me hear you speak so. That is how he speaks. The other one. Old one. He speaks like that, does he? That is why I love him so. Oh, Jack, now I can tell you the truth. I love him with all my heart, but I fear him also. I fear him for myself, but above all, I fear him for Father. I know that some great sorrow would come upon us if I dared to say what I really felt. That is why I have put him off with half-promises. It was in real truth our only hope. But if you would fly with me, Jack, we could take Father with us and live forever far from the power of those wicked men. Again, there was a struggle upon McMurdo's face. And again, it set like granite. No harm shall come to you, Eddie, nor to your father either. As to wicked men, I expect you may find that I am as bad as the worst of them before we're through. No, no, Jack, I would trust you anywhere. McMurdo laughed bitterly. Good Lord. How little you know of me. Your innocent soul, my darling, could not even guess what is passing in mine. But, hello, who's the visitor? The door had opened suddenly, and a young fellow came swaggering in with the air of one who was the master. He was a handsome, dashing young man of about the same age and build as McMurdo himself. Under his broad-brimmed black felt hat, which he had not troubled to remove, a handsome face with fierce, domineering eyes and a curved hawk bill of a nose looked savagely at the pair who sat by the stove. Eddie had jumped to her feet full of confusion and alarm. I'm glad to see you, Mr. Baldwin, said she. You are earlier than I thought. Come and sit down. Baldwin stood with his hands on his hips, looking at McMurdo. Who is this? he asked curtly. 
It's a friend of mine, Mr. Baldwin, a new boarder here. Mr. McMurdo, may I introduce you to Mr. Baldwin? The young man nodded in surly fashion to each other. Maybe Miss Eddie has told you how it is with us, said Baldwin. I didn't understand that there was any relation between you. Didn't you? Well, you can understand it now. You can take it from me that this young lady is mine. And you'll find it a very fine evening for a walk. Thank you. I'm in no humor for a walk. Aren't you? The man's savage eyes were blazing with anger. Maybe you're in a humor for a fight, Mr. Porter. That I am, cried McMurdo, springing to his feet. You never said a more welcome word. For God's sake, Jack, oh, for God's sake, cried Porter, distracted Eddie. Jack, he will hurt you. Oh, it's Jack, is it? said Baldwin with an oath. You've come to that already, have you? Oh, Ted, be reasonable. Be kind. For my sake, Ted, if you ever loved me, be big-hearted and forgiving. I think, Eddie, that if you were to leave us alone, we could get this thing settled, said McMurdo quietly. Or maybe, Mr. Baldwin, you will take a turn down the street with me. It's a fine evening, and there's some open ground beyond the next block. I'll get even with you without needing to dirty my hands, said his enemy. You wish you'd never set foot in this house before I'm through with you. No time like the present, cried McMurdo. I'll choose my own time, mister. You can leave that time to me. See here. He suddenly rolled up his sleeve and showed upon his forearm a peculiar sign which appeared to have been branded there. It was a circle with a triangle within it. Do you know what this means? I neither know nor care. Well, you will know. I'll promise you that. You won't be much older either. Perhaps Miss Eddie can tell you something about it. As to you, Eddie, you'll come back to me on your knees. You hear, girl? On your knees. And then I'll tell you what your punishment may be. You sowed. And by the Lord, I'll see that you reap. He glanced at them both in fury. Then he turned upon his heel, and in an instant later, the outer door had banged behind him. For a few moments, McMurdo and the girl stood in silence. Then she threw her arms around him. Oh, Jack, how brave you are. But it is no use. You must fly. Tonight, Jack, tonight. It's your only hope. You will have your life. I read it in his horrible eyes. What chance have you against a dozen of them with Boss McGinty and the power of the lodge behind them? McMurdo disengaged her hands, kissed her, and gently pushed her back into a chair. There, Kushla, there. Don't be disturbed or fear from me. I'm a freeman myself. I'm after telling your father about it. Maybe I am no better than the others, so don't make a saint of me. Perhaps you hate me too now that I've told you as much. Hate you, Jack. While life lasts, I can never do that. I've heard that there is no harm in being a freeman anywhere but here, so why should I think the worst of you for that? But if you are a freeman, Jack, why should you not go down and make a friend of Boss McGinty? Oh, hurry, Jack, hurry, or the hounds will be on your trail. I was thinking the same thing, said McMurdo. I'll go right now and fix it. You can tell your father that I'll sleep here tonight and find some other quarters in the morning. The bar of McGinty Saloon was crowded as usual, for it was the favorite loafing place of all the rougher elements of the town. The man was popular, for he had a rough, jovial disposition which formed a mask, covering a great deal which lay behind it. But apart from this popularity, the fear in which he was held throughout the township, and indeed down the whole thirty miles of the valley and past the mountains on each side of it, was enough in itself to fill his bar, for none could afford to neglect his goodwill. Besides those secret powers which it was universally believed that he exercised in so pitiless a fashion, he was a high public official, a municipal councillor, and a commissioner of roads, elected to the office through the votes of the ruffians who in turn expected to receive favours at his hands. Assessments and taxes were enormous, a public rights were notoriously neglected, their accounts were slurred over by bribed auditors, and the decent citizen was terrorised into paying public blackmail, and holding his tongue, lest some worse thing befall him. Thus it was that, year by year, Boss McGinty's diamond pins became more obtrusive, his gold chains more weighty across a more gorgeous vest, and his saloon stretched farther and farther until it threatened to absorb one whole side of the market square. McMurdo pushed open the swinging door of the saloon and made his way amid the crowd of men within, and hit it with the smell of spirits. The place was brilliantly lighted, and the huge, heavily gilt mirrors upon every wall reflected and multiplied the garish illumination. There were several bartenders in their shirt sleeves, hard at work mixing drinks for the loungers who fringed the broad, brass-trimmed counter. At the far end, with his body resting upon the bar, and a cigar stuck at an acute angle from the corner of his mouth, stood a tall, strong, heavily built man who could be none other than the famous McGinty himself. He was a black-maned giant, bearded to the cheekbones and with a shock of raven hair which fell to his collar. His complexion was as swarthy as that of an Italian, and his eyes were of a strange, dead black, which, combined with a slight squint, gave him a perfectly sinister appearance. All else in the man, his noble proportions, his fine features, and his frank bearing, fitted in with that jovial, man-to-man manner which he affected. Here, one would say, is a bluff, honest fellow, whose heart would be sound, however rude his outspoken words might seem. It was only when those dead, dark eyes, deep and remorseless, were turned upon a man that he shrank within himself. Feeling that he was face to face with an infinite possibility of latent evil, with a strength and courage and cunning behind it which made it a thousand times more deadly. Having had a good look at his man, McMurdo elbowed his way forward with his usual careless audacity and pushed himself through the little group of courtiers who were fawning upon the powerful boss, laughing uproariously at the smallest of his jokes. The young stranger's bold grey eyes looked back fearlessly through their glasses at the deadly black ones which turned sharply upon him. Well, young man, I can't call your face to mind. I'm new here, Mr. McGinty. 
You are not so new that you can't give a gentleman his proper title. Haste, counsel him again to young man, said a voice from the group. I'm sorry, counselor. I'm strange to the ways of this place, but I was advised to see you. Well, you see me, if this is all there is, what do you think of me? Well, it's early days. If your heart is as big as your body and your soul as fine as your face, then I'd ask for nothing better, said McMurdo. My God, you got an Irish tongue in your head anyhow, cried the saloonkeeper, not quite certain whether to humor this audacious visitor or to stand upon his dignity. So you were good enough to pass my appearance. Sure, said McMurdo. And you were told to see me. I was. And who told you? Mother Scanlon of Lodge 341, Vermissa. I drink your health counselor into our better acquaintance. He raised the glass with which he had been served to his lips and elevated his little finger as he drank it. McGinty, who had been watching him narrowly, raised his thick black eyebrows. Oh, it's like that, is it? said he. I'll have to look a bit closer into this, Mr. McMurdo. A bit closer, Mr. McMurdo, for we don't take folk on trust in these parts. Nor believe we're all told, neither. Come in here for a moment, behind the bar. There was a small room there, lined with barrels. McGinty carefully closed the door, and then seated himself on one of them, lighting thoughtfully on his cigar and surveying his companion with those disquieting eyes. For a couple of minutes, he sat in complete silence. McMurdo bore the inspection cheerfully, one hand in his coat pocket, the other twisting his brown moustache. Suddenly, McGinty stooped and produced a wicked-looking revolver. See here, my joker, said he. If I thought you were playing any game on us, it would be short work for you. This is a strange welcome, McMurdo answered with some dignity. For the bodymaster of a lodge of freemen to give to a stranger brother. Aye, but it's just that same that you have to prove, said McGinty. And God help you if you fail. Where were you made? Lodge 29, Chicago. When? June 24, 1872. What bodymaster? James H. Scott. Who's your district ruler? Bartholomew Wilson. Uh, you seem glad enough in your tests. What are you doing here? Working the same as you, but a poorer job. You have your back answer quick enough. Yes, I will always quick speech. Are you quick of action? I have had that name among those that know me best. Well, we might try you sooner than you think. Have you heard anything of the lodge in these parts? I've heard that it takes man to be a brother. True for you, Mr. McMurdo. Why did you leave Chicago? I'm not telling you that. McGinty opened his eyes. He was not used to being answered in such fashion. and amused him. Why won't you tell me? Because no brother may tell another a lie. The truth is too bad to tell. You can put it that way if you like. See here, mister. You can't expect me, as body master, to pass into the lodge a man for whose past he can't answer. McMurdo looked puzzled. Then he took a worn newspaper cutting from an inner pocket. You wouldn't squeal on a fellow, said he. I'll wipe my hand across your face if you say such words to me, cried McGinty hotly. You are right, counselor, said McMurdo meekly. I should apologize. I spoke without thought. Now, I know that I am safe in your hands. Look at that clipping. McGinty glanced his eyes over the account of the shooting of one Jonas Pinto in a Lake Saloon, Market Street, Chicago, in the New Year, week of 1874. Your work, he asked, as he handed back the paper. McMurdo nodded. Why did you shoot him? I was helping Uncle Sam to make dollars. Maybe mine were not as good gold as his, but they looked as well and were cheaper to make. This man Pinto helped me to shove the odd... To do what? Well, it means to pass the dollars out in the circulation. Then he said he would split. Maybe he did split, and I didn't want to see. I just killed him and lighted off of the coal country. Why the coal country? Because I'd read in the papers that they weren't too particular in those parts. McGinty laughed. You were first a coiner and then a murderer, and, and then you came to these parts because you thought you'd be welcome. That's about the size of it, McMurdo answered. Well, I guess you'll go far. Say, can you make those dollars yet? McMurdo took down a half a dozen from his pocket. McMurdo took half a dozen from his pocket. Those never passed the Philadelphia Mint, said he. You don't say. McGinty held them to the light in his enormous hand, which was hairy as a gorilla's. I can see no difference. Ah, you'll be a mighty useful brother, I'm thinking. We can deal with a bad man or two among us, friend McMurdo. But there are times when we have to take our own part. We'd soon be against the wall if we didn't shove back at those that were pushing us. Well, I guess I'll do my share of shoving with the rest of the boys. You seem to have a good nerve. You didn't squirm when I shoved this gun at you. It's not me that was in danger. Who then? It was you, Counselor. McMurdo drew a cocked pistol from the side pocket of his pea jacket. I was covering you all the time. I guess my shot would have been as quick as yours. Ah, God. McGinty flushed an angry red and then burst into a roar of laughter. Say, we've had no such holy terror come to hand this many a year. I reckon the lodge will learn to be proud of you. Well, what do you want? And can't I speak alone with a gentleman for five minutes? But you must bet in on us. The bartender stood abashed. I'm sorry, Counselor, but it's Ted Baldwin. He says he must see you this very minute. The message was unnecessary, for the set, cruel face of the man himself was looking over the servant's shoulder. He pushed the bartender out and closed the door. So, said he with a furious glance at Murdo, you got here first, did you? I have a word to say to you, Counselor, about this man. Then say it here and now before my face, cried Murdo. I'll say it at my own time, in my own way. Tut, tut, said McGinty, getting off his barrel. This will never do. 
I have a new brother here, Baldwin, and it's not for us to greet him in such fashion. Hold out your hand, man, and make it up. Never, cried Baldwin in a fury. I've offered to fight him if he thinks I have wronged him, said McMurdo. I'll fight him with fists, or if that won't satisfy him, I'll fight him any other way he chooses. Now I'll leave it to you, counselor, to judge us between us as a body master should. What is it then? A young lady. She's free to choose for herself. Is she? cried Baldwin. As between two brothers of the lodge, I should say that she was, said the boss. Oh, that's your ruling, is it? Yes, it is, said Baldwin, said McGinty, with a wicked stare. Is it you that would dispute it? You would throw over one that has stood by you this five years in favor of a man that you never saw before in your life? You're not body master for life, Jack McGinty, and by God, when next it comes to a vote, the councillor sprang at him like a tiger. His hand closed around the other's neck, and he hurled him back across one of the barrels. In his mad fury, he would have squeezed the life out of him if McMurdo had not interfered. Easy, councillor, for heaven's sake, go easy, he cried as he dragged him back. McGinty released his hold, and Baldwin, cowed and shaken, gasping for breath, and shivering in every limb, as one who has looked over the very edge of death, sat upon the barrel for over which he had been hurled. You've been asking for it this many a day, dead Baldwin. Now you've got it, cried McGinty, his huge chest rising and falling. Maybe you think if I was voted down from Bodymaster, you would find yourself in my shoes. It's for the lodge to say that. But so long as I'm the chief, I'll have no man lift his voice against me or my rulings. I have nothing against you, mumbled Baldwin, feeling his throat. Villain, cried the other, relapsing in a moment into a bluff triviality. We are all good friends again. And there's an end of the matter. He took a bottle of champagne down from the shelf and twisted off the cork. See now, he continued, as he filled three high glasses. Let us drink the quarreling toast to the lodge. After that, as you know, there can be no bad blood between us. Now then, the left hand on the apple of my throat. I say to you, dead Baldwin, what is the offense, sir? The clouds are heavy, answered Baldwin. But they will forever brighten. And this I swear. The men drank their glasses and the same ceremony was performed between Baldwin and McMurdo. There, cried McGinty, rubbing his hands. That's the end of the black blood. You come under lodge discipline if it goes further. And that's a heavy hand in these parts, as Brother Baldwin knows. And as you will soon find out, Brother McMurdo, if you ask for trouble. Faith, I'd be slow to do that, said McMurdo. He held out his hand to Baldwin. I'm quick to quarrel and quick to forgive. It's my hard Irish blood, they tell me, but it's over for me and I bear no grudge. Baldwin had to take the proffered hand, for the baleful eye of that terrible boss was upon him. But his sullen face showed how little the words of the other had moved him. McGinty clapped them both on the shoulders. Tut! These girls, these girls, he cried. To think that the same petticoat should come between two of my boys. It's the devil's own luck. <laughs> it's the cullion inside of them that must settle the question, for it's outside the jurisdiction of a bodymaster, and the Lord be praised for that. We have enough on us without the women as well. You'll have to be affiliated to Lodge 341, Brother McMurdo. We have our own ways and methods different from Chicago. Saturday night is our meeting, and if you come then, we'll make you free forever of the Vermissive Valley. We'll continue the story on our next episode. I want to remind you that we're always on the hunt for great stories, like this one, to feature on the show. Send your story suggestions to bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel full of stories from the show. Go to tiny.cc slash bbjbedtime. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Music. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep every single night. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a Buy Me A Coffee link on every page and post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program.